Welcome back to World Cup Coffee and Tea at Northwest 18th and Gleason for another Oregon Music News Coffee Shop Conversation. This is number 149. My name is Lisa Helfer. I'm filling in for Tom Diatoni today, and with me is Portland-based virtuoso mandolinist Tim Connell. Tim is a graduate of New England Conservatory who has created a sophisticated and original global mandolin style. Regarded as one of the top North American interpreters of Brazilian choro, Tim has also developed his own unique voice for the instrument through jazz, bluegrass, klezmer, and classical music. Let's meet Tim. So you regularly tour America as a solo artist, and you're in collaboration with Eric Skye, Cesar Garabini, and then in Europe with Dutch string duo Machiel and Marika Wiesnecker. Yeah, yeah. And you have been a featured guest artist at the National Conventions of the Classical Mandolin Society of America, mm-hmm. and were also on the staff of the prestigious Mandolin Symposium for several years. That's right. And then you... <laughs> Also teach, yeah. and you teach all over the country and in Portland. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, I read some background about your studies at New England Conservatory. You graduated with a master's in education. Yeah, 1997. Great. Yeah. How was your time in Boston? <laughs> it was great. I love Boston. Um, I was born there, but grew up in Philly. So when I came back oh. for college, it was like, you know, it was sort of familiar from trips up. And I loved NEC, like best two years in Boston for sure. Yeah. I didn't do music undergrad. I did uh, like linguistics at another college in Boston. So oh, wow. I finally gave myself the gift of studying music for my master's there. Went back. Um, and you studied contemporary improv. You studied a lot of mm-hmm. different things. Uh, yeah. Irish music, klezmer, and choro there as well? Um, I was later? introduced to it there, but I didn't really learn it or study. I mean, when I say introduced a classmate gave me he saw i played mandolin and said hey i I know this brazilian mandolin player and kite gave me a cassette that i listened to a lot before i finally decided i need to learn how to play this stuff so yeah Mm -hmm. even sure goes back to that place after yeah um so who did you study with at uh, nec um i did world music with peter rowe who sadly just passed away this year um i took an indian music class with him too um just kind of like indian music appreciation um, Hank Isnetsky, I did a contemporary improv and specifically the Yiddish music performance class that I don't know if he still does. I hope he still does it because I met some good friends there. And mm-hmm. I think so. I think loved he loved the does. teaching style. And he, basically, we learned a song a week or two songs a week off of a cassette tape. And hmm. um, we all had to learn the same melody. So I formed a klezmer band out of that class with all the tunes we had all learned together. Mm-hmm. It was about 10, I think it was a 10 piece. Hmm. And you were just saying that you found the mandolin through that class with Hankus. Yeah, I had a mandolin, but just, you know, knew a few chords. I played Irish music, so learned a bunch of those jigs and reels, but hadn't really, you know, mastered the instrument or studied all my scales and arpeggios. But uh, Hankus, in kind of deciding what instrument I should play, because I wasn't like a violin student or flute student, when he heard mandolin, his eyes lit up and said, yeah, yeah, that's an authentic, you know, Yiddish klezmer instrument. Hmm. So they were hard melodies, you know, and I had to really kind of bear down on it. 
I'm not used to the mandolin being a klezmer instrument. It, it is, but yeah, I mean, it was an everything instrument at that time in right. the teens and twenties. It was kind of popular around the world. It had its moment at the turn of the century. It. I read that it. Uh, it's, that was sort of its second heyday in the 1920s because second, it, oh, like earlier in Italy, like it the whole went, classical thing. Yeah. yeah, it went sort of up and down um, as a popular instrument from the 1700s, mm-hmm. 1800s, then sort of fell from favor and then had a resurgence right. in the 1900s. Yeah, my friend Mike Marshall says every hundred years, so he, he keeps yeah. saying we're due, <laughs> we're due, like now. <laughs> right. Um. So and. So after you graduated, you continued teaching. Did you teach right away? Um, I went and got a part of my NEC. Um, they had just um, started a music ed program. That's kind of how I snuck into this place, uh, music ed major. And I got a master's in music ed, and minor in ethnomusicology, CI. Hmm. And yeah, I went and got a public school teaching job to support my music habit mm-hmm. and did that for 17 years. Wow. Moved out to Oregon, kept doing it. So and. Went down to part-time, and the past four years, I've been full, full-time full freelance. Wow, great. So it took a while to build this thing that I have now. Yeah, and exclusively my mandolin you're teaching? Um, or? Yeah, at the moment, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's neat. And so how does teaching impact your the music, your albums, your performances, and vice versa? And how does... Hmm. I don't know if it does. I, I just always have practiced and like studied kind of in private and started putting my little duos together. Mm-hmm. And I really only got mandolin students in a serious way after I had just kind of put myself out there with a few CDs and started teaching at camps. Mm-hmm. And so the performance definitely influenced getting a crop of students interested. Um, having Yeah, I don't know if it's the other way around it, or not. Yeah. Just, uh, Except that a lot of my students are good friends and supporters, and they kind of, you know, mm-hmm. give me feedback on things that are they like and are interested in. Mm-hmm. So that might have something. I mean, my students are definitely some of my biggest like support, I guess. Right. As an so artist, there's a like a sounding board there. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, you didn't grow up in a musical family, which isn't a prerequisite for a mus- musician mm-hmm. necessarily. Um, but you really forged your own path through music study. What types of music were played in your home growing up? Um, we had a piano, so that was the way I got into it at first when I was six or seven years old. Like, you know, I remember music, public school music class where they showed the notation, like middle C, and, you know, these are lines and spaces. And I knew that my mom had this sheet music in the piano bench, so I, like, went home. I was seven, I remember, went home, like, found all the middle C's and circled them. And so my parents took note and said, we got to get him piano lessons. So that's how it started. But mm-hmm. they had not really played. She had played as a kid, I think. That's why she still had this sheet music. Um, mainly just uh, cassettes in the car and records around the house. Bob Dylan, Paul Simon. My mom's okay. from the South, so Otis Redding, James Brown, mm-hmm. Percy Sledge. Uh, the Beatles were mm-hmm. everywhere. So, you know, just what Next. my parents listened to, basically, mm-hmm. was the earliest thing. Folk and soul and sort mm-hmm. of yeah, sixties kind of mm-hmm. you know everything. They graduate college in '68, I think. So right in the middle of it all, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Paul Simon and Bob Dylan were definitely the two number number two cassettes in the car. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, so you you said you went to linguistics first, so you didn't really have it as a path as 
yeah, initially. I was, I was really into music, but I was like, I, I don't know if you know how music schools are in general. Sure. NEC broke the mold a bit, but it used to be you're either classical or you're jazz. And if you're classical, it meant you could really you know, play the classical repertoire and all that technique. Jazz, it meant you you know, knew your scales and arpeggios, could improvise. Right. I just came up in a school that didn't really have either of those programs. It was like a pri- private Catholic prep school and <laughs> kind of nothing almost musically. And so my friends and I had rock bands. There was musical theater, so they didn't hire outside musicians. So the students were the musicians. And hmm. that was my venue, really, just learning all this theater. By the junior year, I was conducting the you know, theater pit and teaching mm. all the vocalists their parts. Mm. So it was a real sort of just all the musicians at the school got together and did our own thing in the absence of any sort of education there. Hmm. That's an interesting, yeah, kind of the reverse of what a lot of people Yeah, I was really underserved. With. So by the time it came to like, you know, apply for college, I even if I'd wanted to really, besides Berkeley and maybe NEC back then, right. this would be 1988, there was no, I couldn't have got anywhere, I mm. think. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I knew how to read well, I could kind of play piano. I mean, I really could play piano, but not classical and not jazz. Mm-hmm. That's they weren't accepting people who knew every Billy Joel tune at that time. Right. Could play Jethro Tullix <laughs> on the flute. The, the, and canon, they didn't, huh? yeah, the eclectic like rock musician wasn't a thing at music school then. Right. Yeah. Things have definitely changed if in the last I had known 20 about years Berkeley, with that. If I'd known about Berkeley and if my parents had been a little more aware of what music school was, I probably mm-hmm. would have ended up there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, linguistics, in absence of that, language was the other thing. The same way I love learning music, I, language was always, we had Latin and Greek in high mm, school. Right. And then my foreign language was German, so I ended up being a German major, mm. just because it's the one that I knew, you know. And then the NEC path Yeah, well, yeah, after college, all I did was play music for three years in Boston, just everything. I was voracious and mm-hmm. look, you know, looking for gigs, and so... Sooner or later, I said, I need to go back and do this thing. It was after three years of just being out there. Hmm. Uh, and how did your parents respond? I mean, you were an adult at that point, but yeah. when you were going towards music, um, they were supportive? Well, I, I was already doing it, but I was like working temp jobs and living in a ratty apartment. So they were <laughs> happy to have any official imprimatur on this thing. <laughs> so yeah, New England Conservative sounds good. Do it. Go. <laughs> um, so... Uh, your musical tastes are are varied, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and you're proficient in so many things and have recorded, um, you know, and perform. You do bluegrass, jazz, klezmer. Yeah, I choro. wouldn't say bluegrass. I just being no. a mandolin player and where most of my colleagues are actual bluegrass players. Right. Like that's my weak point by far. You know, interesting. I end up at the gig here or there where you fake it and. I'm good at the slow ones, the songs, the tremolo. I love Bill Monroe's tremolo, but mm. I really don't know the repertoire mm. outside of a few fiddle tunes that I don't really play in the style that I kind of mm. do in my own way. So yours is it, more... I keep putting that on my to-do list, like actually learn how to play some bluegrass tunes and learn some Bill Monroe licks, but mm-hmm. <laughs> it keeps staying down at the bottom, unfortunately. Mm. That's interesting. It's, uh, it's a thought of... Very bluegrass instrument. Yeah, in America, so it's right? unique yeah, the way that you have uh, created that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I didn't come up with that music, and when I first got a mandolin, I really wasn't aware of it. I was mm-hmm. just playing Irish music, and a few Irish musicians. You know, it wasn't a popular instrument because it's too quiet at the sessions. But you know, fiddle players played it, and tenor banjo is a thing at the mm-hmm. Irish session, and it's tuned exactly like mandolin. Hmm. 
So I just found one and said, I'll learn some Irish tunes on it and really didn't know about the bluegrass thing too much. Hmm. It's, it's interesting. I read, um, an interview with Andy Stamen. Andy Statman, yeah. Statman, mm-hmm. Statman. Uh, and he said, Klezmer is finished because it doesn't represent a living community. Mm. And I made me think, I know you don't play bluegrass per se, but it made me think of those sort of, like, I mean, you could say that with jazz, you can say it with blues, you can say it with so many different styles of music. So uh, what do you think about that when the traditional forms... Because you play a lot yeah. of traditional form. I've thought about it a lot. Um, so how, do, how does it translate today? Yeah, I mean, Andy was lucky enough to study with Dave Tarras, the clarinet player. So mm-hmm. he had like one link to this thing, if what he would have called the living tradition back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, whenever. Mm-hmm. I, th- I guess Dave had his heyday in the 40s and 50s. Um, there's a similar thing with Choro, the music from Brazil that I play, and Jacob de Bandelim and all these masters. It kind of had its heyday in the 20s, 30s, 40s. And Jacob de Bandelim was kind of at the end of it. He recorded in the 50s and 60s. But today, it's a huge, vibrant tradition, kind of a revival with the younger people starting in the 90s. But everyone still learns the tunes from the old recordings. Hmm. So in a similar way, there's a big klezmer community. They have klez camp every year. And right. In the Northeast, especially, and in Canada, there's like great musicians that have great ensembles. And it kind of looks backward. I mean, it's because they're learning stuff off. My, my point was they also learn all this stuff off the old recordings. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of that looking backward nostalgia thing. But a lot of the bands are saying, no, we're modern, too. You know, Right. And it's not going to be the same. But yet you can add uh, nuances and mm-hmm. it expands. So Right. Yeah, and not- in every tradition I've studied, Klezmer, Shoro, the Irish, there's a bunch of people really trying to go cling to the exact way they did it and there's people going way too far and i'm always like kind of the middle i'm yeah you know i like i appreciate both um so how have your own musical tastes evolved from where, where you studied from nec from what you play now Tastes. Um, I've always been kind of wide open to everything. I mean, it started out with, I guess, classic rock when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, and the folk thing. I always kind of went more toward really composed music. And like even with classic rock, I was way more into Beatles and The Who than I would have been the Rolling Stones. Or like the blues band kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I guess as I've aged, I like everything. I've appreciated real raw music like blues, less chords in theory and technique. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, taste. Um, <laughs> I, I guess it, it, to put it, I, I'm getting more into simple, regular music. I used to really value weird time signatures or like really mm-hmm. intense, complex chord progressions. And more and more, I just like something that hits people emotionally. So mm-hmm. I'm singing more too, just like once mm-hmm. you start singing, it's, for me anyway, it's more regular song form. You're doing a song, the lyrics are the, the star so right i still love dance music like traditional dance music stuff with real cool grooves and you know it's all different irish music groove takes some learning it's really interesting it evolved over years and the shoro thing from brazil is like dense rhythmic grooves like so much information that i've had to learn and i love it i just Mm. i I really like music that's kind of hypnotic trance like Mm mm-hmm have you ever performed with dancers? 
Um, yeah, Irish music, definitely. I've mm-hmm. toured with a dancer from Boston named Kieran Jordan, really excellent Sean Nose Irish dancer. The mm-hmm. Brazilian music's a little weird because Choro is more like a chamber music. You sit around a table and play it, but you can dance to it, but not mm-hmm. as much. I haven't done as much of the straight-up samba music mm-hmm. that really, that's like more dance is intrinsic to it. Does it cross over at all and, and it's Brazilian but does it cross over with flamenco at all in, in any way for you or it's very um, different no def- definitely a different tradition yeah yeah um okay so um you discussed um you discussed playing the tin whistle and in addition to studying with Hankus, uh, now that I have that background, mm-hmm. that the mandolin for you was portable. It was that <laughs> yeah. way, literally and culturally. Yeah, I played bass kind of, prof- if, like professionally in Boston anyway, bass, electric bass was uh-huh. the thing that I did. Um, yeah, it was kind of a pain. I'm a little guy. I didn't have a car in Boston at the time. <clears throat> And bass got really tiring. And uh, it came when I was getting very serious, of course. You know, the pressure to get an upright bass was there, too. And I just, I tried it and just my size, the portability factor, everything. I kind of was like, all right. And at that time, I was getting really into this type of music that I'd never heard before, never been exposed to, traditional dance music. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know Irish music that well, Mm. but really highly ornamented intense rhythm and you know it's hard it's really demanding and and i had a really good teacher and a good circle of musicians at the time that i was learning it with Hmm. and i was just getting more and more fascinated with this traditional dance music as opposed to all the american popular music i'd played since high school so you uh do you find any limitations in that at all? or In the there, tin whistle? Or, the, or in the mandolin? Yeah, I'm not like a huge mandolin fan. You know? <laughs> That's interesting. Like, yeah, I mean, because at first it's like, oh, it doesn't bend like the violin. And coming from Irish music, the tin whistle also, you smear or bend these notes. Sure. And that was the first thing. I'm like, oh, I can't bend. I'm, I'm missing this stuff. And it's just you have to play every single note unlike a violin. Yeah, I, I, I don't know, too trebly, too clicky. I was kind of a critic of the mandolin at first. I didn't have a good instrument, too. That mm. might have helped. Um, what was the question? Uh, <laughs> if it's... You, you answered it. If, it, yeah, if there were limitations, mm-hmm. if you felt that there were things... Your, your repertoire is so diverse, but, right. but musically... Well, when it came down, the reason I picked it after all that dissing was I really wanted, just like the Tin Whistle, something where I could play Irish music since I'd worked so hard on that. And I'd really taken all these ornaments from the whistle and figured mm. out a way to do them pretty well on mandolin. Mm. So I was psyched. But on whistle itself, I couldn't play Bach. I couldn't play, like, jazz. I probably could have. There's a guy named Howard Levy that played with Bella Fleck who actually can play all the, all 12 notes. So, you wow. Know. <laughs> but I wasn't ready to go there. So mandolin was like the... Unless I was going to sit and learn the violin fiddle, it was the one that gave me access to all these different musics. Mm-hmm. I was getting into Django Reinhardt at that time, like, you know, string, plucked string, jazz, and I thought, man, if it's like, he plays guitar, Stefan Grappelli plays violin, mandolin's got to work in this music. Sure. So, and after Hankus' class, I really did. I was just fascinated with the instrument. I wanted to get better at it, so I started learning all my arpeggios that I knew on the piano and bass, all the chords, all the scales, and one thing led to another, and Hmm. sooner or later, I was just, I kind of got hooked on it, just got 
hooked on becoming virtuosic on one instrument instead of playing all these other instruments just in rhythm sections. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, I think those in-depth studies tend to inspire that. It's, yeah, it's yeah, great. yeah. It's just, I was inspired by the in-depth study. It just kept, it felt good, so I kept going for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so beyond uh, NEC, you've developed all these nuances, and so how do you... For example, like your your latest album, Mandalone, mm-hmm. you have the Beatles, Beatles, you have seven works from uh, box cello suites, and there's a return to classical mm-hmm. there. Um, but how are you, as a musician, listening and playing all these different elements? Um, I mean, there's a bit of jack of all trades, master of none element going on. Like I'm not at all a serious classical player. I don't know the repertoire. I've learned a few Bach pieces and I've sat in classical orchestras here and there, but it's besides what I put on that CD. Honestly, I don't have a big classical repertoire or anything. Um, the deepest thing I went into was certainly the music of Jacob de Bandolim, this, the Shoro music from Brazil and a, a bit Stefan Grappelli and Django. But mm-hmm. I'm, you know, kind of know enough about arpeggios, scales, rhythm to just make it work in these styles. Mm-hmm. And the only ornamentation and real, like, nuance that I've studied is Irish music and Shoro, mm-hmm. like, in a serious way. And so those two styles, those nuances come out a lot when I play jazz or if I even classical. Those Bach pieces are full of Irish ornaments. Hmm. Interesting which some people like, and I've heard a few of my classical fans don't like. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's a critic everywhere, mm-hmm. I guess. But <laughs> yeah. But it's your interpretation, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I couldn't just go into one thing. And like mm-hmm. I went to this mandolin symposium that you mentioned at the start of the interview. I went to the first one of those in 2005, and it was run by David Grissman and Mike Marshall, two really legendary American mandolin players. Mm-hmm. And... Mike especially just always invited people from different traditions. So that's how I met my first Shoro musicians after having listened to this, uh, these recordings from the 50s and 60s for 10 years. Mm, interesting. And met uh, the classical players from over in Europe, like Katarina Lichtenberg and the Wiesenekers, that uh, mm-hmm. brother-sister duo I play with, and got to see other ways to approach the instrument instead of I always had the pressure to like play bluegrass. Or, right. You know, oh, you play mandolin, you got to play bluegrass, and... So the nice thing about that symposium was it gave me exposure to people doing other things with the instrument. It's funny. I interviewed Sarah Jarose not too long ago, oh, nice. and yeah. she says the same thing. She says, I don't, I'm not really a bluegrass player. Mm-hmm. I don't really feel she I was represent at that was she? Yeah, yeah. I met her there when she was 13. She was powerful. Yeah, out. she's been <laughs> just so young. She started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, she's said she's more singer-songwriter folk, but um, it's she doesn't feel comfortable. I think bluegrass has changed maybe in that way. Maybe it's because, uh, like you said, they're real traditionalists. And so if you veer into a different direction, I don't think it's really yeah. a concern about being the critical part of it. It's just more, uh, it doesn't give people space yeah, creatively yeah. Compl- in yeah, the way that, that they want. Yeah, that world's perfect. You see at the, you know, at the bluegrass festivals, there's the old guys in the RVs with exactly. the cowboy hats and then there's these young kids I mean she's not that young anymore but I mean I was going to say people like Sarah have changed it they're, they're the ones Chris Thiele 
had yeah. taught at the first uh, Mandolin Symposium, and she and several other great musicians now who are out there, you know, doing new things with bluegrass. They're calling it chamber grass, or you know, right. And it's beautiful and lovely. I like it a lot more than I have real respect for the traditional thing. I like Bill Monroe's real sure. avant-garde style that he created, you know, kind of all on his own. Mm-hmm. But I love this chamber grass thing. All those musicians in Boston were doing the past ten years or so. Yeah, there's a lot of. Uh expansion for mm-hmm. sure and at boston had i guess maybe because of the the irish influence but boston boston definitely has its own bluegrass contingency i think it's yeah uh, i don't know traditional as much i'm sure there are people doing it i always felt like right. the folk thing overwhelmed everything when i lived there in the 90s yeah that's um, very strong there's too. pockets of people doing real traditional but i think it's really berkeley and nec or mm-hmm. the, the driver of that whole youth you know intense almost classical meets bluegrass thing it yeah, seems like it anyway for sure I agree with that I think um, the basis is there for the for development in, in a lot of different ways and the groups form and, and they're, they may start in a traditional way and then they develop their own sound so mm-hmm. um, so my last question is how you conceptualize what you put on your albums how do you decide what goes there and Let's see. I, my, my group, Rio Cambrio, was really just my vehicle to learn Shoro music. So I just picked my favorite Shoros that I worked on and that we had together. So that was, it was more just like here. This is what I've been doing and this is us. Um, Stumptown Swings, my quartet that does gypsy jazz. And again, just the tunes I like, you know, the tunes that we really loved playing. And June Apple was kind of more an Eric Sky production, and it was mm-hmm. just you know a bunch of the top ten or fifteen fiddle tunes. And again, we played for fun these tunes in our living rooms and kitchens for years. And it's weird when Eric said, "Hey, our first because we did um, jazz, like you know, kind of Miles Davis modal jazz mm. for the most part, a few standards, like out there live." And then he said, "Hey, you know, our first album should be all that stuff we just do for fun, the, the fiddle tunes." Mm like mm. and it was sort of marketing saying hey you know with this whole swath of mandolin and guitar students and fans love this music and we don't do it right but at the end it was just it was cool it was fun because we didn't do it normal and we did it our own way so that was more of a an artistic choice on his part my part hmm. like let's do the top tunes but we're not going to even try to do them the way 90 percent of the mandolin players and guitar players are doing them mm-hmm what else have I done? Mandalone was honestly just, I've had kept picking away at solo arrangements, meaning stuff you can play all by yourself on the mandolin where mm-hmm. the melody, the chords are there. And I just picked the ones that I knew were the best. I'd been playing them in concerts for a while. And, you know, was... once, once I got up to like 12 tunes, enough for an album, I said, all right, let's do this thing. That's great. So, uh, and those things take forever. I mean, some of them, yeah. are for every one that works, there's like 10 that, you know, almost got there. You tried different keys, and there might be even just one little section. It's like mm. impossible. You only have four strings. <laughs> and sometimes the melody is like on this string, so you only have one string underneath it to really play, you know, accompaniment. Those things were so like puzzles. Those things were like Sudoku puzzles, like kind of how is this going to work? And mm. So a lot of, I mean, you just hear it, it's pretty, but there's so much detail I put in to make mm. sure some of those things can get pulled off. Um, it's, as you explained, with four strings, mm-hmm. and it's you're carrying the whole thing. So, yeah. Um, and 
You record everything in Portland? Um, yeah, my one album, Mando Planet, we did up in Port Townsend, Washington, mm-hmm. just because my, my partner Jack had a connection there. So. And how has you been in Portland for how many years now? Uh, so 2001, 17 years. Well, have you seen the music scene change here? Um, not really. I mean, there's a lot of, it's, it's better. I definitely, there's more people moved here, but mm-hmm. a lot of the old stalwarts are still going for it. At, you know, some of the same, uh, bars or clubs too. Mm-hmm. It's always been, you know, it's gotten better. The quality of musicianship I think has risen, but it's always been a place where you can do quirky little things like right. Django Reinhardt on a mandolin or <laughs> Brazilian Choro jams. You know, people are kind of open to a lot of stuff. A lot of space. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anything else you want to add? Um, I don't know. No, I, I couldn't <laughs> think of anything. That was that was pretty well covered. Great. Well, thank you for joining us today, and um, we look forward to speaking with you again sometime. Great. Thanks so much, Lisa. Mm-hmm. Thanks,
Thank you.